Good morning. How are y'all this morning? Okay, good, fine. No answer. All right, that's about right. <laughs> My name is Jamie. I'm one of the pastors here. Glad to see you guys this morning. Um, we are going through Genesis. Uh, we're going through that together. Um, and I hope you realize that as we go through Genesis together, um, that you're seeing your need for Jesus, that this is not separated from hearing about Jesus, that this is actually a way to see Jesus, <laughs> right? Um, <clears throat> to know that, that you can, we can get a superficial reading of the Bible, and we can get some morality, and we can get some good advice, but to get to the gold, we need to marinate, we need to saturate, we need to, to put ourselves before and dig deep to find gold and to mine for it. And I'm hoping that's what we're doing together uh, as we do that. It's not on your ability, it's on the Holy Spirit that we, he, he just, he delights to reveal the whole of the Bible that points to Jesus. And, and Jesus told, that, told us that in Luke 24. Um, and so we get to see that now kind of through the thread of the promise that's being passed from one individual to another, from one family to another, from Abraham to Isaac and now to, to Jacob. And we see that all of the fathers failed at some point. They failed, and yet God's promise is not broken. Now, today, we look at how messed up we can be. And, and, and when we, even when we really mess up or when the world's brokenness spills over onto our lives, we see that God does not abandon his promise and he does not abandon us no matter what. Your friends may fail, your family may, may falter, you may lose your reputation, your finances uh, may just crash, but Jesus will hold you fast in his power. So that's the question we ask today. What, what is God teaching us through these chapters? Um, Stephen read chapter 35, and if you've been keeping up with where we are, we're in chapter 34, right? And, you know, who wants to preach on chapter 34? I, I went and tried to get some help from some of my uh, mentors in the Word, and they decided not to do it. And so I thought, what am I doing? <laughs> I'm, I'm probably making a really poor decision here. But I, I think there's, there's some, some gold to be mined here. Um, so let's try to do that together. Um, I want to give you an exit ramp. Uh, a lot of the children have already left in here, but this is an off-ramp uh, this morning due to the nature of the content of chapter 34. Now, I'm going to be as discreet as possible. You know that I, I, I always try to do that, and so I want to be sensitive. But because the story deals with such heavy brokenness, all right, it's kind of an R-rated story is kind of the language we would use for that. So if you, want, if you don't feel like your children or, or students are ready for that, then please feel free to, you know, uh, take them out or go to a class. Is my family going to stay? Are you all going to stay? You're going to stay? Okay. All right. All right. <laughs> Just want to give everybody an off-ramp um, because it's full of sexual abuse, treachery, and genocide. It's, it's a heavy topic that we do not want to take lightly. Um, the name of God is not even mentioned in the chapter in chapter 34 at all. Um, and the, and the, the Bible uses kind of as a framework for this chapter, the word outrageous actually shows up in there. All right, so it's outrageous. And so we want to realize that and call it that and use that as a lens to kind of look through and see what's going on here. And so to catch you up, if you haven't been following with us as we, we follow Jacob, right, Jacob was told by God to leave Laban. That's where he'd been for 20 years. And God said, go and, and go to Bethel. Um, the, the land of your fathers, go there. And, and that was like a few chapters earlier. And, and so he starts to do this, and he meets God uh, along the way. And he has a, transfer, a transformative wrestling match where he gets his hip touched, and it's put out of socket. He's wrestling with God, right? And, and it leaves him with a limp and, and a new name, 
Israel, that, that reflects his new character. And now he, we believe he's, you know, he's certainly he's a believer now. He's actually, he's wrestling with God. He wants to follow God. At this point, he's soaring on our approval ratings. Yes, go Jacob. You're finally, you've turned your life around. You're finally doing it. We're really starting to like this guy. And his conversion seems evident in, in how he comes uh, to settle a 20-year controversy with his brother Esau uh, when he had deceived his brother and stolen the birthright and the blessing last week. And, and he wants to, to make amends. And, and Jacob, after that happens, he starts falling back into his old patterns. We're like, what are you doing? You wrestle with God. You're a believer. You don't... What are you, why are you doing that? Why are you going back to the way you used to live, going back to the old fountains or wells? He says, Esau, yes, I'll follow you to your house. And then he proceeds to go directly the other way, right, as we saw on the map. And he didn't obey God either, right? He went a little ways to where God told him to go. He said, go to Bethel, go to where you're, the land of your fathers. And he went a little ways, and he stopped well short of where he's supposed to go. First in Sukkoth and now in Shechem is where, where, where we see. If you're a parent, you know what you would call that. You would call that partial obedience, or at best, delayed obedience. Or as we like to reframe it at the house, disobedience, right? <laughs> delayed obedience is disobedience. Partial obedience is disobedience, right? I didn't ask you to get 72% out of the street. You know, I want all of your body, all of your limbs out of the street because if you get any part of it hit, it's going to be bad, right? Don't play in the street. There are reasons that we give children commands. It's not because we want to make sure that we can rule over them so that we can protect and provide for them. I didn't realize that as a child from my mother, but that's what was going on, right? And she was really good at that. Uh, You know, things today I have to say, don't put your slime concoction on the antique table. That's a command. Here's another one we we have. Um, Don't ride your scooter on the trampoline naked. Right? There, there are things that I've never thought of that just kind of come out. You know, even with clothes on, but especially without them. You know, don't do that. That's not helping us in the community. Right? <laughs> Partial obedience is not only not trusting authority and an authority that loves you. It's dangerous. It can be dangerous. And that's what we see today. Chapter 34 is a good illustration of that danger. When I tell my children to do something, there's a reason behind it. So Jacob and his family have moved from near, near, they've moved to Shechem. And Dinah is Leah's only daughter. You know, Jacob is married and he's got two wives and, and they're concubines or they're maidservants, right? And so there's uh, Leah and Rachel. Rachel's kind of his favorite. Leah is not. And you remember the deception that went on there. And if you remember, Leah isn't Jacob's favorite. So probably since Dinah is her daughter, she's probably not on his favorite list either. Now, that's a quiet detail that kind of plays into the story a little bit later. So keep that on the back burner. And so verse 1 of chapter 34 says, Dinah, the daughter of Leah, whom she had born to Jacob, went out to see the women of the land. So she was walking out in the land. Probably not a great idea. Usually uh, ladies that weren't married kind of stayed around the home. But at the same time, this guy named Shechem, who was a prince of the land, saw her. In verse 2 he says, it says he sexually abused her. And the Bible uses the word humiliated her. So that's why we know that that's the sexual abuse that's occurring there. And then it follows up in verse 7 with the word outrageous. And this is a thing that should not be, it must not be done. 
So we know this is kind of what starts the story. This is where the brokenness enters the picture. Um, now, we, we know that this culture is wildly removed from our 21st century culture. We have to understand that. So there are a lot of things we're not going to understand, and I, I get that. This was written before the Ten Commandments we were even given, right? But never was it okay and, and for God's people to, to do something like this. And this is an outside of God's people. Uh, this is Shechem and Hamor. This is the Canaanites. And so it's never been regarded as okay. And so the Bible is just making sure that you see that. It's calling it outrageous. So afterward, and the follow-up is Shechem, it says, loved her and spoke tenderly to her. He even wanted to marry her. So this is our story starting to pick up a little bit. I mean, it starts with painful and terrible brokenness. But then it continues to escalate. When Jacob hears about what's happened to Dinah, his daughter, verse 5 says he held his peace until his sons came. And then his sons come on the, on the scene, all right? And what we hear from them is they were indignant and very angry. And so we've got two different responses. We've got holding peace and we've got indignant and very angry. And Shechem got his dad, Hamor, one of the Canaanites, right, to come and ask Jacob for his daughter's hand in marriage, like nothing had even happened. Hey, can they be married? My son really likes your daughter. Maybe our peoples could intermingle and intermarry. You see where some of the commands from God are coming, coming from? He knew this. And so this would give Jacob's family land. It would give him property and safety, the things that he was looking to God for. Shechem even offered to give a bride price, and that was customary. And on top of that, he would give a gift. He was like, whatever, it's gonna, whatever it'll take, I'll do whatever it takes. I'll give you whatever you want. Just let me be married to your daughter. And so we see that Jacob kind of steps in the background, and the sons of Jacob answer. In verse 13, the Bible uses the word, the sons of Jacob answered deceitfully. Sons of Jacob, deceitfully. How about that? Okay, they say. We will allow this as long as all of you become like us. And that, what that means is as long as all of you are circumcised, right? Shechem, he would have said yes to about anything at this point, but they meant the entire city of men. We want you all to become like we are, or this is just not going to happen. And they knew they had Shechem right where they wanted him. And so Shechem and his father Hamor, men of great influence in the city uh, that was named after him later, Shechem, um, go to the men of their city, in verse 20, and they convince them that this is going to be good for the whole city. And they even use a little bit of deception too. They say, it's even an advantage. In verse 23, it says, will not their livestock and their property and their beasts be ours? And so they're both wanting safety and security and more uh, stuff, right? It seems to be mutually beneficial, or at least they framed it that way. So all the men of the city became like Jacob and his sons, circumcised. And, of course, that hurt, right? That's painful. And this is where the bottom of the story just kind of drops out. The sons of Jacob, specifically sons by Leah, right, Simeon and Levi, they took their swords and they killed all the males of the city. And then they plunder the city and they take the little ones and all the, the wives and they capture them. Now, the Bible is remarkable at packing a huge story into 31 verses. 31. So what do we learn from this story? Why is this in there? It's a great question. So before we do that, let's, let's do a little bit of... Here, here are our three points for today. Number one, 
I wanted to tell the story before I get to points. Number one, um, well, responses to brokenness. All right, so there's three responses to brokenness that we see. Number one is Jacob passivity. Number one is Jacob's passivity. Number two, we see the sons of Jacob, and we see punishment or attacking. See two different ends of the spectrum. And then finally, we see God in pursuit of the promise and his people. He still continues to pursue his promise and his people. Now, we need a quick classification of this brokenness. Uh, whenever we talk about that, we just a quick reminder. This is what you need in coming here today, right? It, it's not to get a pep talk from me, not a pep rally for Jesus, right? We don't, we don't need that. It's not, it's not good at advice so that you can tweak your life or your lifestyle, and it's not some pointers just to improve your marriage, although all the things are probably good. What, what we're looking for here is that when we are faced with utter brokenness, it, it doesn't need tweaking. It needs an entire transformation, right? It needs something bigger that, that comes from the outside that changes us, not to refurbish, but to recreate. And that's what happened when we became Christians. We went from death to life. Not We were sick and we got some antibiotics and we're a little better. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. And Christ has breathed life into us. So three kinds of brokenness here we're going to look at. Number one is personal sin. Um, a good example would probably be addiction. Oh, drugs and sex? Yeah, let's add some more things to that, though. They're respectable sins, all right, that, that we all get caught them in. How about being an approval junkie? Control, pornography. Maybe it's uh, you have to have a hit of recognition or retail therapy. There, there's a bunch of different ways that, that we turn to medicate ourselves. Uh, a non-Bible word would be a coping mechanism. The Bible calls it idolatry. Right? That's, that's how we deal with life. We all do it. And we have different levels of justification to where we can handle this one. We know this one's wrong. We're working on this one, but this one's mine. This one's okay. You know? And so this personal sin. Number two is sin we've been sinned against. And this is kind of more the story today. Other people's sin affects us. Anywhere from gossip to abuse, sexual, verbal, domestic, violent abuse, right? Terrorism. There's abuse that happens to us, and we feel the weight and the depth of someone else's sin. And then finally, as a sinful world, just because when sin was ushered in, it didn't break just our behavior to where we make poor decisions, it broke everything that it touched. It, our motivations, the way we dream, the world around us, natural disasters, disease, death, it all brought it in and it twisted all that was good. And so it's why we have cancer. It's why we have tornadoes. And that's why we long for Jesus to come back. That, that's why we get that. There is a yearning that we are supposed to have to long for all the things that have been done wrong to be righted. That's what Revelation is about. So point number one, those are the three kind of ways or, or, or types or kinds of brokenness. Um, but our first point is Jacob's passivity. You really know what's in a man or a woman when they get squeezed. Right? You can be whoever you want people to think you are until you get pressure and stress in your life. And then what comes out, Jesus says, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. When you get pressed and squeezed, who you really are is revealed. Now, sometimes that's really good because you know what to deal with. 
And so we see what's really in Jacob. Because of his partial obedience, his family has stepped outside of the circle of God's blessing and will. They've ended up in a horrible situation. God didn't cause this. He told him, don't go. Go to Bethel. How does Jacob respond to what's done to his daughter, to his family? We see that Jacob throughout this chapter is passive. He's in the background. He doesn't really respond at all. He holds his peace until his sons arrive. And then when they do arrive, he just kind of stands there. And his sons take over and they, they lead the family. Does this sound familiar to the garden and what Adam did as he stood there and Eve? The Bible says, and Adam was there. He did nothing. He just let it happen. He was present but not active. And because of this unwillingness to lead his family, they moved even further from God into genocide, wiping out an entire people. And he doesn't even ever mention Dinah. And you know what Jacob's concerns are after this event? You know what what bothered him the most and what's mentioned is, is in verse 30. Verse 30 says, Then Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, those that had wiped out the cities, You've brought trouble on me by making me stink to the inhabitants of the land. My numbers are few. If they gather themselves, they'll attack me, and I shall be destroyed, both I and my household. He was concerned about his acceptance in the community. He wanted to save his own skin and his family. God's not even on the horizon. His daughter's well-being wasn't even mentioned. The fact that his sons are capable of such deceit and savagery isn't even addressed. He's just worried now that everybody's going to hear what happened and come after him. And Jacob may have had some moments of admiration when wrestling with the Lord. But right now, he's not even likable as a person. He's forgotten what God has promised to be with him until he did what he said he was going to do. That he, Jacob followed his own way. And I don't want to be too hard on Jacob because it's really easy, but we do the same thing. I know that I do. And it may not be as extreme, but we take our eyes off Jesus and the situation overwhelms us or we put ourselves in the center and we're paralyzed by fears of what others think or we simply forget that God has promised to never leave us when we need to be crying out to him. That's Jacob's response. Number two, the response of the sons of Jacob, which is totally different. So Jacob is, is passive And he retreats, and the sons of Jacob, they are of their father Jacob. If Jacob deceived Esau and said he was going to go to Seir, but he he didn't, and that seems to have worked out pretty good, why why don't we, you know, let's just do that. That seems what we've seen most of our lives, let's do that. And we see generational sin. God stopped that. And so they lay a trap to get revenge for their sister. And you'll notice that the two sons that did the murdering were Dinah's brothers, not the other sons. And so they probably, probably uh, felt the slight from Jacob to their mother Leah and to their brothers, uh, their other brothers and sister. Felt we're loved less and by extension, he just doesn't care about us as much. We need to take care of this situation. He's not going to do anything. His indifference probably fueled the fire to their anger. And so they would become the judges. 
They will take things into their own hands. They will see what's right. And if you've ever, ever heard of the Old Testament law, uh, lex talionis, or an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, you, know, you kind of get an idea of where that comes from. Maybe it's in reaction to this. I don't know. That was a, ch- that was a push for justice, to have a punishment that was equal to the crime. This is a response that's way out of proportion. The, the sin was now in that, or the, or the response to sin is in the hands of partial judges, not impartial. And it led to a massacre of people. When the crime was by one man toward one woman, an entire city has now perished, or all the men in the city have perished, and all the families up overturned and up in upheaval because of it. And their deceit was ironic as well. Because they used the cover of, of circumcision to mask their murderous intentions. You know, circumcision was, it was a sign of the covenant between God and man. Think about that. They used a sign that God gave them to wield their judgment and pass out condemnation without consulting God at all. Religious language. Religious language can be a cover to hide dark motives. Even fool us into thinking we're doing God's work when we're only accomplishing our own will and may even be working against God. That's why Jesus was so tough on religious leaders in the New Testament. They used religious means and and language to put a yoke of slavery and performance around God's people. Rather than free them to love God and live as He commanded, it, it pushed them down. Modern-day versions of this are prosperity theology or name-it-and-claim-it theology that, that promise things. And we can be fooled by that. It sounds theological. It sounds right. Is that from God? I'm not sure. Or legalism, right? When we foist legalism on people, as long as your family looks good on the outside, then, man, you're, you're welcome. You can come in here and feel good about it. We put a mask on and we come in on Sunday morning and we all feel good about each other when actually on the inside we're all kind of dying and so we can't really reveal what's going on because you will use that as a weapon against me at some point in the future. Number three. How did God respond? Jacob's like, no, I'm going to go this way. And his sons, we're going to take care of this. God pursues the promise in his people. So we're back at chapter 35. That's kind of the story. And God said in chapter 35, verse 1, God said to Jacob, arise, go up to Bethel and dwell there. We're looking for the gospel in here, the good news for this terrible brokenness. And in spite of Jacob's partial obedience or his disobedience, his lack of trust, his lack of willingness to lead, God comes to him at his lowest point. He says, arise. God comes to him. He says, go up to Bethel. You know what Bethel means? Do you remember? Bethel means house of God. It's where God lives. It's where God is. And God restates what he said to Jacob prior to his disobedience. He says, go live where I am. 
The name of God didn't show up at all in chapter 34. So God pursues Jacob even after he willfully disobeys him and he blows it again. Strong-willed Jacob. He's fallen back into his flesh pattern. We talked about how that happens. That there's a difference between justification and sanctification. There's a difference between being declared righteous and becoming more like Jesus. That this is not a linear move. That there are ups and downs. Look at Peter's life, right? Jesus, I'll go anywhere for you. I'll die for you. Wait, I don't even know who you are. Boom. And yet Jesus loved him and he came and he made breakfast for him after his resurrection. And he looked at him, the Bible says he looked at him and loved him. There's great hope for us who keep turning from God. And the actual fathers of the faith did it over and over and over again. Adam fell. Moses is a murderer, right? We've got Abraham who didn't believe. We've got uh, David who was an adulterer. These are the people that are held up, not as heroes as much as this is who God works through and loves and continues to pursue. These people that blow it time and time again. And he comes after us. This is good news. This is where our hope lies. If you don't feel that, you've got to feel and understand that I can't just sit in your head and be an academic exercise because you'll have just a mechanical religion that you keep doing and it's not a relationship and it never will be one because it never has been one. Just talking about God. And people almost destroying their families and yet God hasn't left. Turn to Him. This is what God had promised in chapter 28. Chapter 28, uh, verse 14 starts there. It says, In you, talking to Jacob, in you and in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Hanging on to it, same promise. Your daddy's daddy. I'm still doing it. Behold, I am with you, and I will keep you wherever you go, and I will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Now notice that promise. The promise was not dependent on Jacob's actions. The promise was not dependent on Jacob's goodness. It was not dependent on his good decision-making, not dependent on his parental skills, not on his ability to lead his family or on his self-awareness to repent or the purity of his repentance. It wasn't about him or what he had to offer. It was sheer grace. You might say an outrageous grace. And we can say the same thing to ourselves. You don't deserve that. Nope. You don't. I don't. God's promise was dependent on God. On His faithfulness to His name. Jacob quit doing that. Come back. God's ability, God's character, God's power. Jacob was invited in. God could have done it another way. Jesus said it like this. You want to to praise me? I'll raise up stones, right? Through John the Baptist. Raise up stones. He wants him to be part of that. Come into the story. God's working through Jacob to spread his glory and his fame and his reconciling love to a new people and eventually the world. This is the Great Commission in action. 
Jesus puts a finer point on it in Matthew. Jacob's response, what is Jacob's response to God's pursuit? What does he tell his family? Verse 2, chapter 35. Put away. Put away the foreign gods that are among you and purify yourselves and change your garments. Then let us arise and go up to Bethel so that I may make there an altar to to the God who answers me in the day of my distress and has been with me wherever I have gone. Change your garments. The change of clothes reflects a change from one state to another. That's the, the picture. That's kind of, I, I believe in Ephesians, that's where Paul gets the idea of putting off the old self and putting on the new self. It's this idea of now, we want, we want to be fully obedient. We want to put away false gods. We, want to hang, we don't want to hang on to our old life. Full repentance, full obedience. And then God publicly, and you'll see that God again, he changes his name. No longer shall your name be called Jacob. I thought you already did that, but Israel shall be your name. This is a public declaration. The first time was a private declaration. It was just God and Jacob. But this is a public declaration of who the people of God are now. Jacob and Jacob's sons of disobedience are not disqualified from the promise. What? Is that right? Is that fair? Is that just? And you start to see a little bit of why the gospel can be offense, offensive to people. Well, I did a lot better than they did. Well, I, I, I didn't kill a whole city. No, you didn't. And neither did you trust God. Are those the same? Seems to be important. We see God, when he appeared to Jacob, Jacob's response was repentance, a turning away, that even from that, he can turn away and he turns to God. How do we respond to brokenness in our lives or to those around us? Here's the picture. You've got number point one, you've got point two. We usually respond in extremes. Are we passive? Or do we go on the offensive? Do we attack? Or do we retreat? Do you get annoyed and kind of write that person off? If somebody has a hurtful comment and somebody points out sin in your life, do you become defensive? I do. Do you get annoyed? And just kind of write that person off. Give them the silent treatment. That's a good weapon of the world. Works. It's pretty effective. Not for reconciliation, but for punishment. You figure out how to shut them down, put them in their place. Because of the work of Jesus on the cross, God doesn't attack us in judgment, although he should. But neither does he retreat from us in our sin and our brokenness. 
He doesn't do what Jacob did, and he doesn't do what Jacob's sons did. In fact, through the cross, he walked right in to our brokenness, into our self-denial squalor, into our pride and self-justification, into thinking we're doing a pretty, pretty good job. We just need Jesus to tweak a few things. Help us a little. Give me a push, right? If we have a low degree of understanding about our sin, we'll have a low appreciation for our salvation. Now, what does that mean? I'll tell you what it means. It means it translates into lukewarm, small, tiny worship. Because we believe that God just gave us a push. We did most of the heavy lifting. That's what we believe. We don't mean to believe that. We don't intend to believe that. But that's what happens when we live in a, in a, in a, in a society that rewards good morality and mistakes it for godliness. Because we can look the same. And we recognize, and when we, we here's what we got to recognize. We must recognize that our sin is outrageous to God and it looks to Him like the abuse against Dinah or murder looks to us. When you read chapter 34, I recoil in the horror of what would happen if that were my daughter or if that were a response of my sons. Do I recoil at the thought of my sin in a similar manner? Or do we just kind of think, we just? I deserved a break. I mean, I've had a hard time. The Son of God was beaten as a criminal beyond recognition, even though he was innocent. He was defiled and mocked and hung naked on a cross in shame for all to see and condemn him and to say, this is your king. That is outrageous. Outrageous sin is covered by outrageous grace at the expense of his precious blood. And so God says, after we've been running away from him, turn to me, arise, go up to Bethel. Because of the death and the burial and resurrection of Jesus, guess what? You don't have to arise and go to Bethel. He came to us. He has come to us. He abides with us. We simply turn and we cry out to him. Jesus has defeated evil and he is the victor. So we don't have to overspend time on beating ourselves up. I don't tell you the nature of how outrageous your sin is so that you just sit around and self-flagellate yourself and beat yourself till you feel better about yourself. That's not what that's for is to recognize the depth of the sin so that our worship will explode with joy because we understand the height of the grace that's been lavished on us. You, you see the difference? One, I, I would get lost. I get lost in, well, if I just felt bad enough, long enough, then I can make up for it. And then, then I could be in God's presence because he know I felt bad enough because I paid for it myself, which steps on the cross and said, that's not quite enough. I need to finish it off. 
That's what I'm telling you. It's not so that you feel bad or about it or worse than you need to. It's so that you recognize the depth of the sin so that you can enjoy the height and worship from a heart that says, thank you, I can't believe you did that for me. Thank you, I can't believe you are who you say you are and that I'm part of this. This is an amazing thing that I have a king that loves me as a father loves a son or a daughter. This is an amazing thing. Why aren't more people involved and just see this as infectious? How can people yawn at Christianity? How can that happen? That's why. That's why you need to know the depth of your sin, not to wallow in it, but to celebrate its death. That, that's where we, we, we say, bring it. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? This is amazing. With our sin, we recognize it, we admit it, we repent from it, we embrace our new name, we take our limp, we enjoy it because it has freed us, freed us. Freed us to love Jesus, to love other people, to say, yeah, you're right. You know what? When you bring that accusation, guess what? It's much worse than that. What you just thought about me, I could fill you in. You want me to give you 43 years of junk? I've been saved from it. He brought me in and I'm sitting at his table. I shouldn't be here. I should be in prison. But nope, I'm here. And I got a ring and I got a robe and I got shoes. <laughs> this is amazing. This This is the God we serve. And so we worship with deep, felt thankfulness and joy. We live with intentionality. We want to advance the gospel. We want to see the kingdom of God in every breath of every body. And so we can say with the, the song, Christ alone came to my mind, no guilt in life, no fear in death. This is the power of Christ in me. From life's first cry to final breath, Jesus commands my destiny. No power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand till he returns or calls me home. Here in the power of Christ, I stand. I mean, that is, that is just my heart just goes, where is this? Where is it? I want to be, be brought into that. I don't want to just go to church. I don't want to just meet with some people. I don't want to just memorize this. Do I want to do all that so that I get to live there. You know what I'm saying? This, do you, do you feel, you're thinking of what I'm putting down. I mean, this is important. This is worth celebrating. It's worth worship. This is how we should respond to brokenness. I'm learning. I'm not good at it. I'm really good at beating myself up and staying there and calling that Christianity. I'm not good at realizing that's half of it. That's the first half. Good job. You're 43. You got about half your life to figure out the rest of it. There's joy. Inescapable joy. In the midst of suffering. In the midst of things not working out. Not all the time, but it comes in waves. And God in his gracious wisdom gives it to us when we need it. Not when we think we need it or when we deserve it. And so when we respond to brokenness... Not now as a Christian, not with quibbling, not with fear and sorrow, but we answer with confidence in the one who called us, who is called the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords and who will come back for us. Healing all the brokenness in this world to say our eyes are on you, Jesus, and not ourselves. So we've got three prayer directives. We kind of wrote them out. They really don't seem to make sense when I look at them now. But the first one's in, like you're speaking to God. Father, please reveal any false gods that I need to take out of my house or my life and put them and put away to abandon my partial obedience for full obedience. 
The next one is simply just pray that the Lord would teach us to grant or treat others the way God treats us. We don't attack and we don't retreat. I'm trying to learn that one in my marriage. Oh, no, 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 no. And you're back and forth, back and forth. How do we gently and patience pursue without attacking and without retreating? But to gently pursue. That's God's character. We're all learning this. I'm not here telling you, hey, this is how you do it. We're learning together. And number three, pray for an awakening of a corporate hunger. That just means all of us. There's all of us to really hunger after God, to ache to know who he is like people in the Bible did who had no other options. They couldn't trust their bank accounts. They couldn't trust their reputation in the community because I've been here so long. They couldn't trust anything other than him. Therefore, you can have everything, but if you lose everything, you don't fall apart because he is your everything. You hold everything with an open hand. You say, I want us to pray like that. I want us to be people of hearts like that. I want to be like that. And so we just pray for that, that God would awaken us to him. So let's spend maybe two or three minutes there and then I'll lead us in uh, the Lord's Supper. Thanks.